Hey, Uncle Weed, why don't you break out some of that private stash? I'm hunkered down under a makeshift driftwood structure of some kind in Clackwatt Sound on the west coast of Vancouver Island. So This is an example of what happens when a rainforest doesn't get any rain for an entire summer. <laughs> I don't want to see big stumps, I want to see big trees. Maybe we'll make things a little bit better, if not perfect. You're on this path, and it's right where you're supposed to be. So don't, 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 don't be. A little better, if not perfect. A little better, if not perfect. Ah, uh, rolling along with the Rainforest Dispatches series on Chulalan. This time around, I, well, I call in some outside advisors to help me sort out these conundrums about conservation and perhaps through their words give me a sense of solidarity. So settle in for a wee bit of book learning along the trail. Well, if you haven't been able to tell, I've been a little bit uh, flustered and confused trying to sort all these uh, you know, social, political, and environmental conundrums out all by myself and not doing a very good job of it. You know, it's like, uh, I suppose I expect to have the forest magically tended to and everything prepared and laid out for me when I arrive. And, and the fact of the matter is I do, you know. I, uh, uh, you know, thinking about it a lot last night at the campfire, uh, I think those who are using fewer resources and able to get by with less, uh, things should be tailored, you know. Parkland should be tailored for those kind of folks. Um, and it goes beyond my uh, interest in not paying the users' fees, and you know, watching you know park rangers go down and and uh, doing inspections on the beach with a bulletproof vest on. I really think that's just un- un- unnecessary, you know. And uh, maybe there's problems with opening up parklands just for people to stay, but I think those problems are certainly going to be less than the crap that comes along with industrialized camping. But, uh, you know, the thing that's really getting, getting to me is all these clear cuts around and, and uh, you know, thinking about am I just overly sensitive about clear cuts and I should just get over it or whatever. But I found an essay here by Howie Wolk in a book that I have called Beloved of the Sky that just happened to come with me, Essays and Photographs on Clear Cutting. Uh, it's got an Emily Carr painting on the front. If you haven't checked out Emily Carr's paintings, she's one of my faves, kind of a... Uh, Canadian impressionist, so to speak, but she really brought, um, you know, environmental clear-cutting issues to the forefront as a painting subject. Everyone had this idea that the forests of British Columbia would just last forever as an endless resource because we just plant more. And uh, she was able to use her art to, get, you know, raise awareness to this and, and respect for trees as living organisms that they are rather than just a natural resource to be exploited. Um, so as I'm sitting here, I'm back on the Wild Pacific Trail 
through the town of Eucula that the district of Eucula is built. And it's really weird because the trail is great. I mean, it's this nice gravel trail and goes through some spectacular scenery. It's well marked, tons of little benches to sit down on, yet it remains uh, a wilderness-like environment. Uh, and, you know, the whole thing at the beginning at the trailhead, there's a sign saying this is generously supported by Interfor and Weyerhaeuser or whatever, Mac Blow, Macmillan Blordell, uh, you know, all these timber companies. And so part of me feels really kind of dirty, and maybe I'm giving them a hard rap. Uh, but I just, uh, well, it's it's conflicting. You know, you go to the National Park Preserve, and it's, you know, all fascist and inconvenient, especially for pedestrians, as I've been grousing about. Uh, and come along here, and it's a great place. I got my painting canvas strapped to my rucksack and my straw hat out, and tons of vantage points, you know, across past by that lighthouse and all these rocky headlands and these giant volcanic outcroppings and, uh, you know, the shore pines and spruce twisted right along the seashore and pushed back from the wind over years and years. The trees literally leaning over it, taking 90 degree turns. The branches covered with lichen, the waves crashing in, and it's fantastic. Uh, but it's built with this dirty money. And to bring tourists into this town that's just filled with developments everywhere, I mean everywhere, there's construction going on in Eucula right now. Uh, and uh, they seem to be taking a more calculated approach than Tofino did. But nevertheless, there's houses going up all over the place. And these little cute condo rentals take a walk out your front door and walk down the Wild Pacific Trail down the beach. And it's a nice thing, you know, but... Uh, Ah, it's confusing to me. Seems like Uncle Weeds found himself in quite a jam. Anyway, here's a little bit of an essay by Howie Wolk, The Great Myth of Clear-Cut Forestry. So for what it's worth. The great myth of modern forestry is that clear-cutting and related logging techniques, shelter wood, seed trees, overstory removal, emulate natural processes such as wildfire, insect infestations, windstorms, and avalanches. Mostly, though, and especially in the West, clear-cutting is supposed to emulate wildfire. According to the myth, since nature periodically uh, levels forests, we might as well do the same and obtain wood fiber for people, too. How convenient. Many myths are born in a grain of truth. Selective applications of knowledge can create mythical Saharas of non-existent dunes. In this case... The grain of truth is that with both clear-cutting and natural disturbances, living trees die and fall. And there the similarity ends. So let's get one thing straight. A clear-cut does not mimic a natural disturbance. It's time to debunk the great myth. For one thing, the mosaic of biotic communities formed by clear-cutting wildfires are strikingly different. A flight over Oregon's heavily clear-cut Willamette National Forest, for instance, will, at best, reveal a horrifying checkerboard landscape of clear-cuts interspersed with standing forests. Indeed it does. At worst, the flight will occasionally reveal entire mountainsides and watersheds denuded and eroding virtually devoid of living or dead trees. Again, I'll interject here in saying that the whole hillside will literally sweep away, and in sliding down, it destroys all the streams and watersheds, which then has a trickle-down effect because then the fish aren't able to spawn and this, that, and the other thing. Okay, back to the text. By contrast, a visit to Yellowstone, which burned extensively in 1988, hmm, I was there in 1989 uh, to see this, 
will reveal a dramatically different mosaic of standing forests burnt to varying degrees interspersed with light or unburnt green woods and lush meadows. Indeed, this is true. It's important to realize that in the burnt forest of Yellowstone, unlike in clear-cut, standing, standing trees still cover most of the land. In places, the burn mosaic is a pattern of elongated, roughly parallel strips of alternately scorched and green forest, running, generally running in a southwest-northeast direction, attesting to the strong prevailing winds that fan the flames. The fires created a, created a habitat mosaic of incredible complexity due to a number of variable factors. Differences in wind speed and direction, slope aspect, woody fuel accumulation, and the location of natural fire barriers such as lakes, streams, and marshes are among them. Also, pre-fire species and age composition, weather, and even the time of day at which the flames reached a given location all resulted in different burn intensities at different times in different locations. Depending on the various ways in which these factors interacted in any given place, either few, many, or all of the trees were killed by the flames. The bottom line is that nature isn't neat. She abhors uniformity and consistency. There's no way that we can emulate the inconsistent and complex patterns created by these factors. Perhaps the most profound contrast between a clear-cut and a natural cataclysm of the kind of the forest it follows is the kind of forest that follows. A major goal of clear-cut forestry is to replace a biologically diverse natural forest of considerable structural complexity with a, with a simplified tree form, farm of one or two economically desirable species. The goal of clear-cutting is uniform simplicity. Nature's goal is increasing complexity, and that complexity begins during the fire with the tangled interplay of the various factors already mentioned. Moreover, burn forests often mature sometimes to a classic old-growth condition before they burn again. By contrast, the goal of clear-cutting is to produce a crop that can be harvested again long before the forest matures, usually less than a century after the clear-cut, certainly less than a century. I'll interject here again. All right, compared with a natural forest, even a recently burned one, clear cuts and tree farms that follow are biological, biological deserts. I mean, I mentioned standing trees. Ironically, they usually characterize recent burns like those of Yellowstone in 1988. In fact, literally millions upon millions of standing dead trees cover Yellowstone's burned forests. The snags will remain standing, some for many decades. Contrast that with a clear cut. There, virtually all of the standing trees are removed or piled as slash to be burned. I'm going to skip right ahead to his uh, to his um, conclusion, his suggestion. Okay. Uh, one doesn't need to be a rocket scientist to see that clear-cutting is wrong. Look at a landscape of clear-cuts and you know it. One needn't have a PhD to realize a forest laced with roads, poisoned with chemicals, and devoid of native species isn't a forest at all, and one needn't conduct years of research to see the profound differences between a natural forest with its fires, burndowns, and avalanches, and the simplified, even aged road tree farms created by clear-cut forestry. We need only be animals with big brains and pretty good eyes, and most important, with heart, to see that clear-cut forestry in all its minor variations is patently and utterly insane. I don't know if the following suggestion is rational or not, and I don't much care. But what I'm about to suggest is probably politically unrealistic, too. And I hope it's grievously offensive both to clear-cut foresters and to so-called reasonable conservationists, the ones who avoid at all costs making enemies. Let's save America's remaining unplundered native forests, all of them, not in tiny museum patches, but in chunks big enough for evolution, big enough to incorporate a shifting mosaic of disturbance-driven habitats, 
big enough to protect complete native ecosystems with viable populations of all indigenous species. Let's restore big forest wilderness on abused public lands. Let's ban industrial forestry on public lands, and let's outlaw habitat destruction everywhere. Period. No qualifier. That includes clear-cutting. In 1987, only 13% of America's timber production came from the national forests. Let's learn to live with 13% less wood. And let's have less junk mail, less packaging, less waste. By the same token, let's have sustainable, careful, sensitive selection forestry on private lands. It may be legal, but it isn't moral to allow Weyerhaeuser, Plum Creek, Champion International, Scott Paper, and Maxam to completely denude vast forest lands to pay off junk bonds. It may be legal, but it's also crazy to sacrifice virgin redwoods, old-growth rainforest, and big wilderness in the Rockies to or- in order to supply logs to Japanese mills, to build condos in Vail or Fort Lauderdale, or to make hot tubs for enlightened liberals in Eugene. <laughs> Let's kick the timber barons off the public lands and force them to do it right on their land. All right, well, it's a little bit of an emotional uh, argument, but interesting nonetheless, and it makes me feel like uh, I'm a little less alone. Well, that was worth 20 bucks. Okay, here's another snippet of an essay from Michael Frome. And in it, he addresses a number of the political questions about resource quotas and the, what should the public expect and the economic cost of loss of wilderness, the Reagan heritage and legacy and such not. But here he addresses the question, do recreation and wildlife matter? Among the multiple uses, watershed protection, recreation, and wildlife hold low priority. Foresters and engineers dominate in personnel numbers, pay grades, and influence in decision-making. There is no civil service classification for recreation management. It is not considered worth recognizing as a profession. Alas, when wilderness is measured in recreation visitor days, it fares poorly, subject to a standard that scarcely treats its broader values. I've met concerned and committed people involved in wilderness activity, but they are out of the mainstream. Most of their colleagues feel wilderness lacks the challenge of management, though it may demand more skill, if not reward, than any other use. Thankful for a place to lay my head 
Gary Snyder checks in with an essay discussing, you know, and Gary Snyder, you know, he's the, the Zen poet, but he grew up in, in a logging country and worked in the woods and really seen from a grassroots level the, uh, the effects of the industry and the ebbs and flows, or just ebbs of the, uh, or flows rather, of the industry as a whole. Here he goes. Commercial West Coast logging started around the 1870s. For decades, it was all below the 4,000-foot level. That was the era of the two-man saw, the double-bitted axe-cut undercuts, springboards, the kerosene bottle with the hook wired into it stuck in the bark. Jippo hand-loggers felled into the saltwater bays of Puget Sound and rafted their logs to the mills. Then came steam, donkey, engine yarders, and ox teams dragging the huge logs down corduroy skid roads or using immense wooden logging wheels that held the butt end aloft as the tail of the log dragged. The ox teams were replaced by narrow-gauge trains and the steam donkeys by diesel. The lower elevations of the West Coast were effectively totally clear-cut. Chris Mazur, in 1989, says, Every increase in the technology of logging and the utilization of wood fiber has expedited the exploitation of forests. Thus, from 1935 through 1980, the annual volume of timber cut has increased geometrically by 4.7% per year. By the 70s, 65% of the timber cut occurred above 4,000 feet in elevation, and because the average tree harvests have become progressively younger and smaller, the increase in annual average cut has been five times greater than the increase in volume cut during the last 40 years. You got that? During these years, the trains were replaced by trucks, and the high lead yarders in many cases were replaced by the more mobile trawler tread tractors we call cats. From the late 40s on, the musical, graceful, royal Chinook two-man falling saws were hung up on the walls of the barns, and the gasoline chainsaw became the fallers' tool of choice. By the end of World War II, the big logging companies had, with a few notable exceptions, managed to overexploit and mismanage their own timberlands, so they now turned to the federal lands, the people's forests, hoping for a bailout. So much for the virtues, virtues of private forest landowners. Their history is abysmal. But they are still, still ill-informed privatization romantics who argue that the public land should be sold to the highest bidders. Into poem mode. San Francisco 2x4s were the woods around Seattle. 
Someone killed and someone built a house, a forest rector raised. All America hung on a hook and burnt by men in their own praise. Before World War II, the U.S. Forest Service played the role of a true conservation agency and spoke against the earlier era of clear-cutting. It usually required its contractors to do selective logging to high standards. The allowable cut was much smaller. It went from 3.5 billion board feet in 1950 to 13.5 billion feet in 1970. After 1961, the new Forest Service leadership cozied up to the industry, and the older, conservation-oriented personnel were washed out in waves through the 60s and 70s. The U.S. Forest Service now hires mostly road-building engineers. Their silviculturalists think of themselves as fiber-growing engineers, and some profess to see no difference between a monoculture plantation of even-aged seedlings and a wild forest. Or so said Tahoe National Forest silviculturalist Phil, Phil something at a public hearing on the management plan in 1986. The public relations people still cycle the conservation rhetoric of the 30s as though the Forest Service had never permitted a questionable clear-cut or sold old-growth timber at a financial loss. The legislative mandate of the Forest Service leaves no doubt about its responsibility to manage the forest lands as forests, which means that lumber is only one, the only one of the values to be considered. It is clear that the forest must be managed in a way that makes them permanently sustainable. But Congress, the Department of Agriculture, and business combine to find ways around these constraints. Renewable is confused with sustainable. Just because certain organisms keep renewing themselves does not mean that they will do so, especially if abused, forever. And forever, the length of time a forest should continue to flourish, is changed to mean about 150 years. Despite the overwhelming evidence of mismanagement and that environmental groups have brought against the Forest Service bureaucracy, it arrogantly and stubbornly resists what has become a clear public call for change. So much for the icon of management, with its uncritical acceptance of the economic speed trip of modern times, generating faster and faster logging rotations in the woods, as against slow cycles. But we ask for slower rotations, genuine streamside protection, fewer roads, no cuts on steep slopes, only occasional shelter wood cuts, and only the most prudent application of the appropriate smaller clear-cut. We call for a return to selective logging and to all-age trees, and to serious heart and mind for the protection of endangered species. Spotted owl, the fisher, the pine, the martin are only part of the picture. There should be absolutely no more logging in the remaining ancient forests. There should be absolutely no more logging in the remaining ancient forests. In addition, we need the establishment of habitat corridors to keep the old-growth stands from becoming impoverished biological islands. A virgin forest is ancient, many-breasted, stable, at climax. The deep woods turn, 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 and turn again. The ancient forests of the West are still around us, all the houses of San Francisco, Eureka, Corvallis, Portland, Seattle, Longview are built with those old bodies. The two by fours and siding are from the logging of the 1910s and 20s. Strip the paint in an old San Francisco apartment and you'll find prime quality coastal redwood panels. We live out our daily lives in the shelter of ancient trees. Our great-grandchildren will more likely have to live in the shelter of riverbed aggregate then the forests of the past will truly be entirely gone.
almost seems like you should have got a couple college credits for listening to those essays, doesn't it? Indeed, you're a wee bit smart about ecology and public policy when it comes to forests now. And I do encourage you to consider these things carefully and think about the lifestyle choices you make and mm, how that impacts the forest, right? Uh, If you're into the Gary Snyder, I did some more literary readings of Gary Snyder's work on that same journey that you can find over on the Postcards from Gravelly Beach channel. As for the rest, check the show notes and you'll find out who wrote the essays, who played the music, etc. And if you're at the blockades, do drop me a note, right? Wander on over to Chugalon.com. It's ideal for ramblers. 